Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. Oh, let's all stand for the, for the reading of scripture. Today, we also don't have the full scripture on the screen. So if you need to, just close your eyes or look it up on your phone whatever you need, so that you can stay focused. Today's scripture is in the 51st Psalm of David. It reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom. In the, inmost, in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. O 
Oh God, you delight in a broken and a contrite spirit. We do so, so much to cover up and to hide the things that are within us, Lord, that we know are um, opposite of the way of human flourishing. And I pray today that each one of us would experience freedom and victory and safety in confession. Lord, many of us have things that we are holding and carrying, burdens that feel like a weight, a yoke on our back, a pit in our stomach. And I ask this morning that you would relieve and bring freedom. Holy Spirit, come meet us in this place. I just want to take about 30 seconds of quiet and stillness. I would encourage you to take a deep breath. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we turned a corner in our journey to the cross as Dan took us through the study, uh, a study on repentance. And we talked about how Christians before us have long noted that there's these four stages of transformation that God's people go through during their lives. Uh, the first stage is awakening, then purgation, illumination, and union. We dug in deep to those first two stages of awakening and purgation through the life of Peter. As you remember, we looked at the life of Peter and Jesus asking him, Peter, do you love me? So today we wanna get very practical. At the heart of those first two stages, awakening and purgation and repentance like we talked about last week is the practice of confession. Virtually every spiritual tradition in human history has acknowledged not only the powerful and emotional effects of confession, but even the physical benefits of airing it all out, of being completely honest. From elaborate Native American rituals, both in North and South America, to Western psychoanalytical therapies rooted in Freud and Jung, everyone knows that confession is needed for full health. Even today, our most modern schools of psychotherapy are committed to helping clients own not only their traumas, but their rights and their wrongs, and to get everything out into the light. And yet, confession terrifies us. We'll do anything we can to avoid it. We'll justify, we'll excuse, or I'm sure we've all done this, at least I hope I'm not the only one. We opt for the partial confession, hoping that it will alleviate our shame. Interestingly enough, in 2014, there was this paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social, Social Psychology, and the researchers found that partial confession actually creates the longest-lasting negative feelings after wrongdoing has been done and discovered and called out. And researchers worked through a series of experiments studying the moods of participants who denied wrongdoing, who confessed fully, and those who partially confessed. And their findings weren't surprising because I'm pretty sure we've all experienced the letdown of a partial confession. There's this lingering shame. 
The partial confessors reported the worst feelings and the longest lasting agony after wrongdoing was found out. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, I couldn't have been more than five years old, facing confession. My stepmom had made this pork chop and mashed potato dinner, and I loved the mashed mashed potatoes, but I did not like the pork chop, so much so that I actually didn't even take a single bite of it. And to further display my disdain of this pork chop, I decided I would take that thing and I would throw the entire pork chop in the garbage without a second thought. Now, just for some context with my family, we were extremely poor. Nearly every day that I would open my fridge, there would maybe be some milk in it, an apple or two, and some condiments. And so every once in a while, likely around payday, now I know as an adult with hindsight, uh, that we'd get this restock. So you can imagine what it was like for my dad when he found an entire pork chop in the garbage. I remember it as if it was yesterday. My dad asked, who threw away their pork chop? And I just need to give some, you know, description of my father. He's a red-haired, German, wild man, and so I was utterly scared. And so I did what any other person would do, I think, and I lied through my teeth. I said very quickly, not me. And of course, my sister and my step- stepbrother were completely innocent, and so they denied uh, having thrown the pork chop away. And so we were all sent to our rooms until someone would confess. Now, my sister, she knew it was me, and the moment we got into our shared room, she told me that I better confess or else. And the funny thing is, I actually don't have a memory as to the conclusion of that situation, but what I do remember is this. As a five-year-old, I was determined I would not confess. Nothing and no one was going to push me to tell the truth because I was scared. So... What should confession look like? If it's so terrifying and so dread-producing, how can we ever make it a regular practice in our lives? I use my childhood story to expose and shine light on what often holds us back from full and honest confession. We don't understand or believe the character of our true father. To be clear, my dad loves me, but there was a lot of unpredictability about my childhood. I often didn't feel safe. I couldn't admit to wrong when I didn't feel safe and secure, and I felt risk of losing my father's love, which had already felt fragile in my experience. But I want you to notice David's prayer in contrast. He says, have mercy on me according to your what? Unfailing love and great compassion. You see, when I wouldn't admit to throwing that pork chop in the garbage, I was viewing my father through a lens of fear. I didn't believe that he would respond with love and compassion, and I was so fearful that he'd be so angry that the thought of that was just too much, and so lying actually felt safer. Unfortunately, the imprints of our earthly father's shortcomings are often projected onto our true father. And this is this unconscious thing that we do as humans. Confession, though, begins by turning to God who he has revealed himself to be. David's prayer of confession teaches us this fundamental truth. Confession is first anchored in God's character. 
David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Friends, David was saturated in the Hebrew Bible. He, it, the Bible informed his image of God as creator and God as father. David's words actually echo Exodus 34 when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. David was anchoring his confession, not in fear, but in who Yahweh had revealed himself to be. Exodus 34, six through seven says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he did not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You see, when David had sinned and he acknowledged it before the Lord, his expectation of God was mercy, love, and compassion, the same way Yahweh revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. Even the whole story arc of the Bible over and over again all the way to the culmination of the story in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is this repeating record over and over of God's compassionate heart towards a failed people. Even the very passages that we have traditionally interpreted as judgment and wrath, when we read them very carefully, often turn out to be God's efforts at awakening his people to their wrongs for the sake of their restoration unto himself. God's judgment and wrath aren't retributive, but they are restorative. Let's just look at some of the characteristics that God reveals himself as. This character, the character of our father to whom we confess, he reveals himself as unfailing in love. Dear friends, this very moment, our God and our father has a banner of love over your life. Nothing you do will ever stop that love. It extends to the highest heavens. It plunges deep into the depths of the ocean as far as the east is from the west, beyond the beyond. Our Father loves us and he will always love us. Second, he reveals himself in this psalm as great in compassion. Right now, our God has deep compassion for us. He understands us. He sympathizes with us. The roots of the word compassion come from suffering alongside someone, literally to suffer with. This great compassion to suffer with is what compelled Jesus to embody himself in our flesh, to suffer as we suffer, to struggle with the same pain, and to be tempted with the same sin. But in our failure, he did not fail as our representative and as our champion. Third, he reveals himself as faithful in restoration. Confession anchored in God's character realizes that we are helpless to cleanse ourselves. We cannot wash our iniquity or blot out our own transgression. And just like the Levitical priests for the Israelites were the only ones who could carry out the sacrifice before God. These priests had the dirtiest and the grossest job. They were, think about it, continually slaughtering animals. 
Now, I know this isn't a concept or a practice that we are familiar with as modern Westerners, but try not to ignore it and don't devalue it. Set yourself in the shoes of these priests for just a moment and picture it. They're representing the people. They were dealing with blood and fur and burning flesh and animals crying out, all for the sake of covering and cleansing the people of their sins. And not just anyone could walk into this temple. It could only be the, pre- the priests that made the sacrifice. And so too, Jesus came as our true high priest, our representative, not only to offer the sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice for himself, for us. And it is him and him alone who can cleanse us of our guilt. Now, one of the greatest challenges of confession isn't the confession itself. It's believing the character of the God to whom we confess. Our flesh wants to justify itself, and there's actually a very real spiritual enemy who wants to distort our understanding of our God and our Father. Second, we learn from this text that confession is self-aware. So first, confession is anchored in God's love, but second, confession is self-aware. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. We spend so much time of our, so much time and energy covering up and avoiding the darker parts of ourselves, don't we? Our society has taken this even one step further, and in many areas they say, you know, not only should we avoid those darker parts of ourselves, but we should just actually accept them as our true selves. And this may be the hardest part of confession, is to be brutally honest about the sin that resides in us. Throughout my life, this has certainly been a struggle for me, being truthful and not making light about my sin and acknowledging it and fully renouncing sin. When I was in high school, I had started dating this guy who was five years older than me, and everything about this relationship was thrilling, and it stroked my insecure ego, and I was utterly swept off my feet. I felt so special and seen, and I was honestly shocked that this good-looking and extremely talented guy liked me. Now, I was a Jesus follower at that time, and I had some pretty serious convictions about sex and sexuality. I won't kiss. I won't make out. I won't be alone and put myself in compromising situations, and I for sure will not have sex before I get married. But the longer I dated this guy, month after month, year after year, my convictions changed to compromises. It's okay to be alone. We won't do anything. It's just kissing. Kissing isn't a big deal. At least I'm not making out. Then, as many of us know and have experienced, that slippery slope of making out led me to do what I said I would never do, and I began to have sex with him. And for six months, I would say, I'm not going to do this anymore, just to find myself right back in the same situation. Month after month, I would say, I've got this under control, only to come face to face with the reality that I indeed did not have it under control. And so I finally broke, and the conviction of my sin was weighing so heavy that I decided I needed to confess to my parents and to my pastors. But rather than fully renouncing my sin in a detailed and honest way, I softened it. I started with, oh, I just had sex once. Then, well, just a few times. 
till my parents and my pastors just said what was the real truth. I was habitually having sex outside of marriage. You see, I didn't want to own up and be truly honest. Through this partial confession, I wanted to make things seem like they weren't as bad as they actually were. And I wanted to avoid the darkness that was in my life that I had allowed in and the compromises that had taken hold. And as I look back over my childhood and my teenage years and even into my early adult years, lying and hiding is what felt safest. Facing the honest-to-God truth of my sin was just too much. And I still experience those old patterns of fear and hiding. Do you guys ever deal with this where you know you've done wrong, but it just feels so hard to confess? Even just admitting I'm wrong in an argument with my husband uh, is really difficult for me, but I have learned and I am still learning. I really want to emphasize that. I am still learning. I have not arrived. That the true, that true confession is self-aware and it courageously keeps coming to the character of God and those I've sinned against with detail and transparency. Pope Francis once said, God never tires of forgiving us. We get tired of asking forgiveness. Self-aware confession keeps confessing over and over and over. And self-aware confession lives the reality of John's words in 1 John 1, 6 through 10. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It's really interesting because even for preparing for this teaching, as I was reflecting on my story, I wanted to make sure that I shared my own sin and my sin alone. Of course, there were two parties involved but we are so good at deflecting our personal responsibility in our sinfulness. Even at the time of my confession, some would say rightfully, you know, oh, she was a teenage girl and she was taken advantage of. In part, yes, but I willfully and actively participated in sin. Others said, oh, you know, it's just hormones and young people will do what they wanna do. It's no big deal. No. I chose to not to flee and to exercise self-control, and in so doing, I sinned against God and ultimately the man that I would marry. While others said, you know, why is this such a big deal? Everyone is having sex, no worries. But I knew my transgressions, and they were ever before me. It is this self-awareness that actually is going to bring true confession and true freedom. David goes on to say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Self-aware confession submits to God's verdicts and judgments. 
True freedom acknowledges without any excuse or justification that God's will is good and true and beautiful, and our sin mars that beauty. Next, confession acknowledges our utter helplessness. As we've talked about in previous, um, previous sessions, sin is both something that we do, that we have done, and it's also something that has been done to us. Remember that tension of a trampoline. We are responsible for our sin, but we are also victims of sin's tyranny. And because of this, confession is actually a cry of helplessness and a prayer for the power and restoration of our Father. David goes on to say, surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I just wanna highlight all the things that David's confession in those verses acknowledged that he could not do for himself. First of all, he could not cleanse nor wash himself of guilt. He could not hear gladness. He couldn't restore to health what his sin had brought He could not cover his sin or blot it out. He could not create in himself a pure heart. He couldn't renew a steadfast spirit within himself. He couldn't stay in God's presence or keep his spirit. And he could not restore joy, remain willing, or sustain himself. David was a man who was utterly wrecked and at the end of himself, and there was nowhere for him to turn to. He didn't have self-help strategies. He couldn't pick pick himself up by his bootstraps. And this section of David's confession was a full surrender, a full laying down of everything to God in trust and faith that God would do for him what he couldn't do for himself. And this, friends, is part of what makes confession so terrifying because we have to come face to face with and acknowledge our inabilities and our frailties and our limitations And those are all the very things that we spend so much time trying to avoid, trying to cover up, and trying to overcome. Confession brings us face to face with our weaknesses, and so we want to flee from it. We want to run. Christian author Frederick Buchner said, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. You confess them, They become the Golden Gate Bridge. Confession born out of utter helplessness is the very bridge that brings us back to the heart of the Father. And the pinnacle of David's prayer of confession isn't this declaration that he's gonna get it right from here on out. He doesn't tell God, you know, I've got this now, I'm all good. He surrendered to what God wants most in each one of us. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Confession embraces brokenness. Confession acknowledges our helplessness and then it offers our brokenness to God. 
knowing that he will not despise what we bring, but he will heal us and he will transform us with his perfect love. And nowhere is this picture so beautifully uh, laid out than in the very, mis- very famous story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. As many of us know, the prodigal son you know, rebelled against his father. He went headlong into sin, demanding his way, and he ultimately ended up eating with the pigs. And for a Jewish person, you have to understand, this was the most base, defiling place to end up, eating with pigs. And in that moment, this son realized his error, and he turned from his sin. He literally walked in the opposite direction of his sin back to the safety and the care of his father. As Dan mentioned last week, repentance is turning and going in the opposite direction from our sin. Recently, I heard it said that confession is the victory moment for the believer. We can't confuse and uh, we can't confuse confession with sin itself. Oftentimes, we view confession as the failing and something to be ashamed of rather than the victory. The return of the prodigal son to his father was the victory moment. As we remember, the, the prodigal son threw this huge party and served the best of the best of food and wine to celebrate his return, his son's return. His repentance and his confession were celebrated. Listen to what the father says. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And so too with us, repentance and contrition are the very sacrifices our father does not despise. He will not despise it. He celebrates it. His heart is bursting with joy. He's like, yes, my child's coming back to me. He's, my child's coming under my safe shelter of protection and care. So confession is the victory moment. Now, I just wanna say as an important side note that confession as victory and our brokenness as sacrifice to God is actually what can make Christianity so attractive. Towards the end of the Psalm, David prays, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that the sinners will turn back to you. David understood that what this world needed more than anything was the hope of confession and the opportunity to simply offer its brokenness to God. And when the church gets this backwards, we actually become these self-righteous people demanding that everyone around us get it right with God, and that is so hurtful. When we are living broken, which is the true state of our helplessness, we are clothed in humility. We are nothing more than a broken community inviting a broken world to come to the Father's love. Now, I know this is subtle, but this posture actually creates a very different tone in how we interact with our neighbors and our peers and those people in our spheres of influence. A Christian who understands sin and true confession doesn't see other humans as an us and them kind of context. Rather, a Christian acknowledges that we are all helpless, we are all broken, And the Christian is merely inviting other humans to be broken with them and to experience forgiveness and love that we all long for. Now, to bring this home, I actually want to share with you guys some very practical and concrete practices on confessing beautifully with transparency and detail. 
Not long ago, actually it was several years back, Dan and I received these confession practices and we began implementing them in our relationship with Jesus and with one another. And they've been so helpful and they have paved this road of like healing and trust and forgiveness. As you guys remember from last week, we talked about that repentance and confession to go deep into the heart. It's most beneficial to embody our confessions one and to another. I know that's scary. Again, confession feels scary. James exhorted his community in James 5.16 to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that what? That we may be healed. Therefore, when we confess to God and one another in our communities, there's healing that takes place, this restorative work that takes place. Confession one to another builds trust. It creates deeper relationships and it guards us, and it protects us. Okay, get your pens ready or your phones ready because I'm gonna give you some very practical, concrete steps on confessing beautifully. First, name the sin accurately. Second, specify the details. Third, acknowledge the pain you caused. Fourth, acknowledge your sin necessitated Jesus' death. Fifth, ask for forgiveness. And sixth, prepare a plan. We're gonna keep that slide up there for you guys so you can keep writing. But I'm gonna go into name the sin accurately. There's a difference between an admission and a confession. And I'm sorry, without significant explanation, is an admission. A confession, though, is way more detailed. A confession calls for a lot of humility, whereas an admission calls for very little humility. So this is so important. This is often where we soften things and we make light of sin rather than honestly facing it. Name your sin accurately and identify the name that God assigns to that sin. So for example, I lied, not I messed up. Or I was sexually immoral, not I looked at some images. Or I committed adultery, not I had an affair or a fling. Use the words that God assigns to those sins. The point is to see the sin clearly, to tell the truth, and to call it what it is. And specificity actually matters a lot when confessing beautifully. So that is why our second point is specify the details in your confession. Relate the details of your sin. Tell the truth. The point is to assume responsibility appropriately and not to overgeneralize or omit things. And if you're actually, if you're confessing to a person, um, remember that specificity actually builds trust. So when I was confessing when I was in high school, I wasn't building trust with my parents and pastors. They could tell there's things being omitted here. Being vague and unclear creates more questions, but you grow in your trustworthiness as you tell the whole truth and you own your sin without blaming others. So as I said, you know, with my situation, what I should have said, my confession should have looked like was I have been in a sexually immoral relationship for the past six months. I have been lying and hiding and covering up my sin. I did this by, and then I should have given the details of the hiding and the deceiving. Third, acknowledge the pain you caused. This is so important, especially you know if you're in a relationship with the person between husband and wife or parent and child or friend to friend. Acknowledging the pain that you caused. The point here is to demonstrate your awareness of how your sin ruptured 
and brought division in your relationship with God and others. So if you're confessing to someone you sinned against, acknowledging the pain you caused is a sincere way to pave the road for healing. So for example, you know, maybe you were talking about a person and that person found out and you need to confess to them your sin. You'd say something like, I see that my gossip about you deeply wounded your sense of value and identity. I diminished you versus, I'm sorry my conversation with others made you feel bad. Do you hear the difference between the two? Fourth, acknowledge that your sin necessitated Christ's death. Each one of us have to admit when we sin that our actions and our beliefs and our desires put Jesus on the cross. I should clarify, our sinful actions, beliefs, and desires put Jesus on the cross. And so we have to acknowledge that he paid a very real price paying for those malformed behaviors and desires, and the consequences were severe. He died. Fifth, ask for forgiveness. Once you've accurately named your sin, and you've been specific, and you've acknowledged the pain and the consequence of it, ask for forgiveness. And then lastly, prepare a plan. And this is really where rubber hits the road. Our relationship with God is a partnership. There is action on our part. And while, yes, there's grace, again, remember that trampoline, that tension. We have to create a plan. And so there's action that follows confession and forgiveness on our part, and therefore a plan to overcome our sin with the help of the Holy Spirit and our community is so important. And so by making a plan, we are more likely to follow through and demonstrate fruit in keeping with repentance. And honoring this step actually helps you put to death the very sin that you are confessing. Now, as we close in his book, How to Pray, Pete Gregg writes, our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing, forgiveness of sins. And this is what's on offer for all of us today. Freedom, a deliverance from shame, an exceeding joy and a willing spirit. Friends, our confession moments, though utterly terrifying, are actually the victory moment that are anchored in God's unfailing love, his great compassion, and his faithful restoration. And confession doesn't solely hinge on us, but it also on a loving father whose kindness has led us to confession. Remember, his kindness has led us to repentance. And so I want to encourage all of us today, don't fear your helplessness, but acknowledge it. Don't try to fix your brokenness, but offer it to Jesus as a sacrifice. And as we come to communion this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to make you self-aware of your sin and failure that he would have you confess, because in that confession is your victory. Let's pray.